so long growing up, I thought about God as this Gandalf, someone that looks like John, basically. Right. Or you, or you. <laughs> long, long beard. White, long beard, you know, just, you know, that's the way I pictured God. And that's sure. the way the images around us encourage us to picture God. Thanks to Morgan Freeman, you know, people are changing their ideas, right? <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of This Is Not Church. I am one of your hosts, Nat Turney. With me, as always, is my brother, John. Um, Say hey, John. Hey, John. All right. All right. We're keeping that alive. I do appreciate that. We have not given up on that yet. If nothing else, we are consistent in our bad jokes, but we have that going for us. Uh, we, we have the honor and the privilege of speaking with, with someone today. I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy hearing from his name is Bayo Akomolafe. And let me read you a little bit of what I pulled off of his website. Um, he can correct any of this if it's wrong, but it, you know it's his website, so it's kind of on him. But um, <laughs> uh, so, Bio is a globally rec- is globally recognized for his poetic, unconventional, counterintuitive, and indigenous take on global crisis, civic action, activism, and social change. He's an international speaker, poet, and activist for a radical paradigm shift in consciousness and current ways of living. His readings of knowledge, development, progress, and truth as Eurocentric meta-narratives led him and his wife to develop the first international workshop on alternative research paradigms and indigenous knowledge promotion, otherwise known as WARP, in 2011. Bio was a member of the advisory board of the Real Economy Lab. In 2014, he was awarded for a Global Excellence Award uh, for Civil Society by Future Shapers. He is the chief curator for the Emergence Network. And my gosh, the list of accolades and accomplishments just goes on and on and on. He's a he's an accomplished writer. Um, uh, the book that I'm currently perusing right now is called "These Wilds Beyond Our Fences," and uh, I, I I'm I'm just stunned, honestly, by by the beauty of it. Um, and I just I just I'm anxious to hear what you have to say on any number of things, Bio. So welcome welcome to the podcast. Thank you, my brothers. Great to be here, all the way from India. Yeah. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. I know that's your, that was the, that's the bio. That's the, that's the official sort of, hey, here you are. But, but tell us about yourself a little bit, man. Yeah. Beyond all that boring stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, I live in Chennai. I'm born to um, my wonderful mother and father from Yoruba, the Yoruba people in Nigeria. So I'm actually Nigerian. I was a nerd in a Christian <laughs> university. <laughs> And I was hyper Christian. And I started to ask questions like my brother here, John. And I'm sure like you too, Nat. And uh, one day I, I fell in love with an Indian scholar who came to my university and I became unchurched. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I escaped heaven. And uh, I'm speaking about faith playfully. Yes, of course. I never think about faith in faith in a way in terms of abandonment or or determinable boundaries. I think it's safe to say that I moved to India because I was on I was seeking something else, seeking something more playful, something that looked like my children. I was seeking a cosmo vision that was that exceeded the narrative of heaven and hell and getting the right answer and the geometry of truth that only rectitude 
is permitted in a world or in a universe that is replete with different kinds of postures, right? But only one, the, the posture of rectitude is aligned with some Euclidean narrative of arrival. And I was, I was, um, yeah, something about that chased me away. I fell outside the fences and I'm here today doing, trying to live a small life where smallness is not about size, but is about intimacy with the ordinary and being in awe with the sacredness of everything. Wow. Yeah. So it's something I was, I was looking through your website and, uh, I literally at this point, I just want to read everything you've ever written. Um, I'm just falling in love with, with, <laughs> you, with Ron. your, with your playfulness. Honestly, you, you've used that word a couple of times. And, and, and that was, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. There's a playfulness <laughs> to your language. There's a playfulness to, to your outlook. Um, there's a quote at the bottom of your, uh, of your website that I, I wanted to read for everybody that I just, it's one of the coolest things I've, I've, I've read in a while. Um, and it says falling might very well be flying without the tyranny of coordinates. Um, I don't know if that's, is that something you wrote or is that a quote from somebody else? Sounds yes. like something you would say, but, um, yes. elaborate on that if you would, because I think that, 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 that speaks to where I'm at in my life right now. I just, I'm really attracted to the idea of domains and territories and ecologies and orientation. I was teaching in a class recently about uh, fungi, a fungal pathogen called uh, Codiceps ophiocodiceps unilateralis, I think is the full name. And it's this, it's this crazy thing that attaches itself to the heads. It infiltrates the ant's body, an ant's body, an insect's body, and literally zombifies the ant. You know, it's in some circles, it's called a zombie disease. And the ant veers away from its colony and um, uh, starts to seek heights, you know, climb leaves and trees until it gets to a comfortable place. And then it bites down, extends its mandibles and bites down on the underside of a leaf, you know, the, the thick uh, vein of the leaf. And then it dies. And then out of its head, the, f- the fungus starts to grow. It's, it's nature at its most horrific, right? <laughs> it co- yeah. couldn't have, it couldn't have convened anything as uh, horrific as this. And then it, sp- it sporulates from there. And I just like the idea of the fact that bodies are oriented. You know, there's this liberal humanist myth that we are our own, that we are separate from ecologies, that we are the organizers of our destiny. But I come from a world where everything is alive. Everything is vital. Uh, the ordinary is brimming with the extraordinary. That nothing is as, uh, is as alone or as, you know, cut off as we think it is. So I, I thought about how we are part of domains and ecologies and how space time itself is not as, you know, is not self-evident. We socially produce the space around us. We secrete time. Um, and in that sense, falling then and failure, the ways we pathologize and medicate and think about the worst parts of our society, of ourselves, is a social production as well. So I think I'm leaning into and really attracted to the idea of failure or desire as the way the world worlds itself the way the world is fugitive and constantly moving away from static algorithms. I guess that's what I mean by failure is 
the tyranny of coordinates is, is the social production. Maybe by failing and maybe by leaning into our failure, we might, we might meet other ways of being in the world, especially in very troubling times as, such as these. It, that resonates with even, even, and I love how this seems to permeate everything you've already said so far. Cause even, even when I jokingly said that I would butcher your name, you said, yeah, but that would produce a new way of saying my name. <laughs> it wouldn't be a failure on my part to not say your name correctly. And, and yes. that, that, that really like automatically delineates, um, for me, the different paradigms we come from. So from my very Western mindset, doing things correctly. Um, and or not right. doing them correctly is a failure and potentially an insult to you. I wouldn't want to insult you by right. not saying your name correctly. And it doesn't seem like you would have perceived it that way. Like you would have not said, yeah. oh, how dare you not know my name? Um, oh, that's another no, way to I say that. Have. That's interesting. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm literally right now, I'm in love with the phrase, the tyranny of coordinates. I just, I can't tell you how much that just it bubbles up in me and kind of makes me smile and go, you know what? Because where, where I've come from in the last probably several years, um, is trying to, trying to extract myself and divorce myself from the tyranny of coordinates. From, mm. um, I didn't have words for it until just now, but from this paradigm that I've lived under where the expectations of a predetermined destination you know, this is where you're yeah. going. This is how you get there. And it's so rigid and confining and constraining. And all of a sudden, when when Jesus bursts into my world and says, no, 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 actually, all of this is um, is is a mystery. All of this has is filled and imbued with wonder. Man, we have to break out of that, out of those shackles in order to ever experience that, don't we? In order to understand yeah. that not all who wander are lost. Sometimes they are just <laughs> they're wandering, right? Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's how we get lost that makes the world the world, right? It's uh, my people would say, and I'm paraphrasing, I poetically render it this way, the sentiment that in order to find your way, you must become lost, right? You, you, that, there, that, that getting lost is, is probably how the world creates newness and novelty, Right, a, a star explodes in in the universe and spills its guts across space time. It fails, and I like to tell people that you know what shines brighter than a star, a failed one. You know, a failed mm. star shines brighter than because yeah. because then then it just doesn't shine in terms of luminosity. It shines in terms of the brilliance of its indeterminacy of its becoming, and then its guts become our skin and then become our astrological systems and become our divination systems and all of that. So the failure, you know, what the French philosopher Deleuze would have called desire, you know, is, is how the world, um, is how the world, the teenage world, the always teenage world meets itself as if for the first time. Yes. Well, I mean, it seems like, you know, if you want to like simplify this down into some like really basic ideas, it seems like Failure and accidents have moved us forward more than determined results. I mean, we you know, hear about Edison, right, and, and creating a light bulb. And I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase also, you know, on the hundredth try, he gets um, yeah. a light bulb that works. And he doesn't call the other 99 failures. He calls them just steps towards the, you know, finding the right one. Uh, but we see this over and over again uh, with, you know, the accidentally making of champagne, right? It was accidentally figured out. They accidentally figured out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. seems like, but we, 
And I say we because I you know was part of it, but we in the Western people in general, and then Western evangelical church seem to want structure and certitude and all of that. And we and we forget or we lose sight of that failure and the unknown has moved us forward more than the known and the and doing something very structural and very specific. Right. I, I mean, we need structure, though. We need certitude. However, certitude is costly, like everything else that is material. And, and structure is also costly. Something that could be salvific and messianic in one moment could be incarcerating, you know, and imprisoning in another moment. So it's, it's that I think we're at a time when our structures, which we mounted around ourselves to give us you know, the idea that we're separate and separable from this chaotic uh, movement of matter that we rudely call nature. All the things technological and otherwise that we mounted up to tell ourselves that we're exceptional. I think we're now having to pay for it right now. It's, so it's like an insurgency of our indebtedness, the insurgency of the invisible. And our culture... The globalizing culture of the West, the, the seed of the Enlightenment, right? The seed of industrial Anthropocene is bleeding or has been bleeding uh, solutions to the cracks that are emerging in the, in, in the, in the structure, basically. So it says, so if, if you're, if you feel like a failure, then go to a psychotherapist and pack yourself back up and get back on, on the rat wheel, you know? Keep yeah, producing. For sure. Because if you're not producing, there's something wrong with you. And if we have a pandemic, you know, this is a time to double down on the normal, right? So close yourselves in, get back into, uh, you know, get into quarantine or vaccination or blah, blah, blah. And then everything will be fine eventually. And the, the thing is, it has not been fine. It has never been just fine. We've always lived in the Atlantic middle. We've yeah. always lived with bones. We've always lived with death around us. It's just that we're so quarantined from this, from these realities in the city. We're so gestating in the city that we lose sight of um, their imperatives and their instigations right now. Yeah, I was I was um, scanning the article you wrote about coronavirus. <laughs> I like I like that you said scanning. <laughs> I, I did. I, I won't. I won't. I won't. <laughs> claim to have read it thoroughly, but I did see it. Like, oh, I did need to read through this a little bit to see. Um, and so I did want to ask you about that. What you just said actually kind of segues nicely into that, though, that whatever sense we have of whatever we call normal has never been normal. And so I liked, yeah. I liked what you had to say. I just, if you would expand on that article that you, I know it's been a little while now. Um, you, I think you wrote that sort of at the emergence of the outbreak. Um, yeah. But I also wanted to dovetail that with a question about what that looks like, um, where you are as opposed to where we are, because I know geographically, politically, right. culturally, you know, we're so, I don't know, we're, we're, we're so, in, we're so inclined to think of ourselves as the center of the universe over here. Um, that we sometimes fail to wonder even what it looks like. What is what is what does this uh, pandemic look like in India or Nigeria mm. or someplace mm. that's not you know the United States of America? So anyway, if you mm. would just kind of give us a a brief sort of overview of that article and then talk to us about what that looks like in your in your country. 
Well, the, the, the article is an attempt at speculative fiction and um, uh, an attempt to venture out into what some scholars call black outdoors or the black geographies. That is, the, the world isn't populated with things. The world is an ongoing matrix of moving relationships, right? It's an interacting dynamic. The world isn't just uh, a collection, a container of things that already exist or are yet to exist. Instead, things don't have preset identities or attributes or features. Uh, we only gain our features and characteristics in relationship with each other. Right now, outside of this podcast, you guys are something different. Within this podcast, you're interviewing and you're my friends, you know, you know, so the, the, the world isn't static that way. So I, I wanted to see the virus not as an enemy because the language is increasingly or has always been, especially since the start of 2020, always been framed almost in the sense of George Bush announcing the attack on the axis of evil. You know, it's, right, it's, right, it's right. like, yeah. Let's let's get rid of the enemy. It's this yes. pointillism again. It's the reductionistic way of reducing the alien to something that can be refuted with the with the stroke of a pen or with a press of a red gleaming button that is connected to missiles <laughs> or, right. or, yeah. or the giant pharmaceutical complex. So it it seems it seems that we are sometimes the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis, right? And, um, and, and then I, I guess what I wanted to do with that essay was to say, what if we listened to the virus? What if the virus were, and were a visitor of some kind? What if all our activisms, you know, our prayers for something to change in the world were met by this guest? Like this is what we've been praying for, but we don't know how to recognize it. Have you guys read uh, the brothers uh, Karamazov? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, right. And, and that Dostoevsky, and 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 that parable, that small part in the in the book where Jesus comes back and the church arrests Jesus. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. <exactly>. Yeah, <laughs> and and the priest is like, yeah, I know who you are, but. We don't need you right now. You're disrupting, <laughs> you, you're disrupting this whole thing we've got going here. So, you know, you might want to just, so they arrest Jesus Christ. And, and I'm, I, I started to think of the, and that's how I wanted to think about the virus, you know, as mother of some kind, as monster, which has its agency. There's something about the monster that our modern culture uh, is trying desperately to invisibilize that the monster is an agent of transformation, right? We use the monster as a way to warn our children not to go there, right? This is what you ought not to do. But I think there are other roles that, uh, you know, embedded in folklore, in archetypes, in mythology, in the songs we've been singing, but now mostly lost, I guess. Where the monster is how we meet a different world altogether, right? Um, especially when we submit to the agency of the monster, we meet ourselves as if for the first time. So I wanted to see the, the, the virus as mother, monster, activist, as something that unspeakable, unframable. And what is it inviting us to do? Here in India, there's, there was a story about some women that went to the beach and, um, during the pandemic, the heat of it. And, and what they did was they mounted up an altar. To worship, what do they call it? I think 
the goddess Corona or something like that. And, and they, they populated this altar, this makeshift altar with sweets and biscuits and stuff like that. I think it was in Kerala. And I think I recall some people saying, this is not the way to respond. This is not a scientifically backed response to the crisis at hand. Uh, you know, I want, another thing I wanted to do with the essay was to bracket science. You know, I'm a scientist myself. I was trained as a scientist, but it, it seems the popular view of science is, is that it's the highway to truth. And not many realize that science is just as political, just as culturally closed as other knowledge systems around the world. Um, it's just fascinating to see the left wing, if I may call it that, in the United States, um, jump on the scientism back wagon to claim that if you're not backed by science, then anything you say is, you know, wrong or stupid or even more desperately wicked. And yet it's this same wing, right, in the United States that wants a culturally complex environment where everyone's views are welcome. So there are some paradox there. Um, I guess with the essay, my invitation is, what if we saw the world differently? What if we tried not to solve this problem? Not that I have hopes that we will do that because we're already getting back to normal, reopening the stuff, uh, the, the shops and the shopping malls. But I think there's a portal open uh, or still open that might allow us to investigate the ways that our bodies are you know, summoned and convened and indebted to the world around us. That's something more than a solution is required now. Now, there's something too, though, about this almost like a, uh, almost like an orthodoxy or a, uh, you know, just a sort of set of, of inviolable mores and norms that we have um, that says we've got to get back to being consumers. Like yeah. we've just got yeah. to get back to normal. And normal for us is the buying and selling and the trading of goods that pretty much yeah. is our, our religion. Um, everything else is sort of secondary to that role. And so everything you've said before about structures and things like that having a cost, that's the cost. You know, yeah. there's a very human cost. There's a, there's a spiritual cost. There's a, it, it just, it absolutely, the, how's, how's that old saying? Oh, you gotta be at some point, you gotta pay the piper and he's, he's coming to collect, um, in a lot of ways. But, um, I just thought that was very interesting. I, I, I so is this, is this situation, I know that it's still ongoing throughout the world. Um, has it been as politicized? Has it been as, 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 as rancorous no. as it has seemed to be here in the United States? Or, no. or do you not have the luxury of politicizing this thing when it's sort of running out of control? No, it, there, there are a few spectacles in the world that are as treacherous as what has happened to the United States now uh, around this virus. It is heavily politicized. I do not know of any place else in the world that is as, you know, what did you call it? Rancorous. Around this phenomenon, as well, you, it's, you know. it's to the point here where you 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 can't have a conversation except with people you agree with, and yes. then you can have a great talk about it, no problem. But the yeah. second, yeah. but the second, any opposing viewpoints or from what from whatever side of the spectrum you're on, the response is combative, and the response yeah. is 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 I don't know. It's 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 I've never seen this level of vitriol. I've never seen this level of intolerance towards other viewpoints. And, and it, it, it makes me sad. It makes me nervous for the future. But, but getting back to what you said about, about normal, um, does this cause us to, to, 
I'm with you. I I don't think it's going to happen, but I was hopeful for a moment that we might seek out a new normal or whatever that looks like. Let's not go back to what was not working before as though we've romanticized (coughs) where we were, right? Like, as we always do, don't we? We always look back and go, man, things were so much better a year and a half ago. No, they weren't. The they just old, weren't the, this. The, the good old times, right? It's before, yeah. before the aliens <laughs> came. Um, yeah. I, I, I have some views about this that I've convened into a concept that I call making sanctuary. And it's the story of how fugitives were granted sanctuary, especially when they were accused of something, right? In the medieval times, if you're accused of being a witch, you ran to the church and you claimed sanctuary, right? This is before we had lawyers and stuff, uh, right? Before the lawyers came with their stuff, people would hold on. To, and this was borrowed from so-called pagan religions. But the church universal took this idea and ran with it as a way to attract more people into their fold. So you were granted asylum from your accusers. I think of today as, you know, because I think patterns are more than human. There's something about patterns that repeat themselves. They're cybernetic. Some might use the term archetypal. So they, they, they're large territorial algorithms that shape us into certain ways of behaving that we might now say, oh, this is just me acting out of my own volition, but rather it's ecological. It's intergenerational. It's cybernetic. It's, uh, effective. So these intensities instigate certain kinds of behaviors over and over again. I feel that in times of trouble, when there are shifts like what we're experiencing right now in these days, that some bodies, some bodies, and I don't know what bodies, depends on the local specificities, but some bodies become accused. So I'm using accusation in a different way. Like something changes dramatically that is beyond the human that disallows continuity, unbothered continuity, the way we just walk forwards. An example of that is is what's happening in China now. I hear, or is it Japan? Ah, I forget. Somewhere in Asia, uh, and this was reported by the New York Times, people are refusing to go to work, right? Suddenly, the idea of work is now visible. Right. It, these were invisible things, the lenses through which we saw the entire world. Now they're now coming into focus and we're now asking strange questions like, do we need to work? Why is work important? It happened here in India as well. Two journalists in, interviewed my wife about unschooling, right? Because suddenly all children were at home. This was a thing that many parents in India had never experienced before. There were monsters living in their homes and they're like, what do we do with these things? Right? <laughs> so, I mean, they asked my wife, for instance, they were like, so how do you keep them productive? And I remember my wife saying, I try to keep them less productive, right? right. My problem isn't their productivity, it's how to tamp down their, their everywhereness, right? right? But these questions could not have been possible without these topographical um, changes, without these shifts. I think that is like becoming fugitive, whereas the world now becomes strange. And what do we do with that moment? We don't know. This is where making sanctuary becomes inquiry for those who are lost, for those who continuity is no longer possible. You pick up your keys and you're like, why do I need to make this commute? Or why do I need to get in my car and go to work? It doesn't make sense anymore. 
So there are times when modernity hollows out, when, when the ways we have grown to make sense of the ordinary becomes strange. And then we now are faced with new questions we can articulate. And I think this is how the new proliferates, when we stay with those cracks in the normal and do some good with that. Yeah. And don't just rush off to patch them up, right? Thank you, brother. Yes. Don't just rush off into the sunset, the heroes. So so often our first response is to is to is to fix those cracks. Save the day. Yes. Save the day, yes. plumb you know, plug the hole. Um, yeah, get back to some normal. But ne- meanwhile, normal is is the house you live in crumbling around you because you've just got it put back together with mud and duct tape and <laughs> whatever, exactly. right? Rather than bravely, I guess, saying, hey, "Okay, well, what's on the other side of this? Is there something new that's waiting for us?" And it scares the hell out of us though because we don't know what it is. And uh, yeah, no, I gosh well, darn it, kill yeah. me with all this stuff. So and- good. <laughs> and we're, we're, you know, we in, we in the West, and, you know, I, I only have that vision of this, right? But we have this notion of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? So uh-huh. everything is I falling apart. Times. Times. Yeah. Everything is falling apart around us in our, in our opinion. Everything is falling apart around us. And we just need to buck up, put it all back together and get back to like, our former leader says to make America great again, right? <laughs> and uh, what again? You know, that, that's but, funny. Right, but what <laughs> what's what has come out of this out of this broken this brokenness of our normality? Uh, this this these cracks in what we considered the normal way of life is that we we are now open to ask the questions. Well, what what when was it great, and how? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that? And can you, and so people are free to ask, start asking these questions. And maybe it is the pandemic. Maybe it is this virus that has given us this voice to say, no, this wasn't, this, this isn't normal. This isn't okay. And look at all these other issues that we have glossed over, pushed under the rug and to make what we want to call normal, what we want to call great, but it was never great for the, for the mass majority of the people in our country mm. or other countries. Mm. And um, mm. I just, I feel like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the horrific part of this virus, right. That of the people yeah. who have yeah, died. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but a lot of people want to put that on us, right. When we say, Hey, well, maybe this is, this has woken us up to some other issues. We're like, yes. yeah, but you're being callous. You're, you're, you're ignoring the deaths. I'm like, no, I'm not ignoring the deaths, but we can't go back to the way we were where we would have ignored the deaths of our our brothers and sisters of color. Yes. Or that we would have yes. ignored the plight of the indigenous peoples in whichever country that is, you know, America, yeah. Canada, Australia, India, Africa, everywhere. We, yeah. we have ignored that. And maybe this is a wake-up call to see that the way we were doing it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I, I've been tuning in, um, I do this all the time, and I tune into the world from the lenses of the West. And I think everyone is running around, you know, there's fire on the mountain, singing, like, run, 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 there's trouble. And there's this new idea that seems to be introduced to, to the discourse around the pandemic. It's called harm, right? So everyone is suddenly speaking about, we need to reduce the harm, 
So we, let's get back to normal and stuff like that and reducing harm and blah, blah, blah. I appreciate the questions you're, uh, some people are asking about when has it always, when has it ever been great? But I want to juxtapose that with the conversation about harm that for many people in the world who have not been granted and are probably not looking for access right now. I know many people are looking for access, but who have not been granted access into the, the territory known as the human, right? They've been seen as less than human, not quite human, right? People like me. Um, harm is our daily existence, right? Harm, uh, harm is not something new. You guys, do you guys watch movies um, where the Dark Knight Rises, where Batman is scrounging and uh, fighting with um, uh, what's his name, Bane, and 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 he throws his gadgets and he tries to shut out the lights. And Bane says, "Well, you know, <laughs> you play with shadows. I was born in the shadows, right? I was, I lived in the darkness, right? There, there is a sense in which that is true, right? That that this is not going to reduce harm. I, I know it might save." lives, you know, the measures that the global order is taking today. But harm is something that exceeds these measures we're taking. I've tried to point out to people that taking a donut in New York or in Boston, I think that's the donut central in the United States, taking a donut, Dunkin' Donuts in, in the United States is connected, entangled with the loss of Sumatran tigers in Indonesia or in other parts of Asia. And I don't want to draw that lineage now, but it connects with oil. It connects with the felling of trees and the decimation of habitats. So it, it, it's not new. This is not, modernity tries to subsidize, you know, our lives by pushing to the frontiers or to the extremities, this notion of harm. But harm has always been in the middle. So the questions you're asking today, like, what if, you know, what if not, America has never been great? Those are very potent inquiries. And I think I want to encourage people to continue to ask that because, you know, who was, what's her name? Anna Singh. She spoke about us living in polyphonic assemblages. That is the disturbance is not at the end of the road. The disturbance is right here. We've always been in trouble. We've just found ways not to tell ourselves that. And, and, and that is at stake today. We want to face the trouble. We want to look at it or else we risk repeating the crisis with our very best solutions. Well, doesn't that just also speak to the, just the interconnectedness of everything, right? Yeah. One of yeah. the things that, uh, one of the things that I've been so disheartened by with religious structures and institutions, and again, especially from my vantage point, is the hyper-individualization of everything. You know, if yeah. you if you come to a church meeting in, in anywhere in the United States, what you're going to hear is, a very, very individualistic gospel. Um, you need to invite Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. And then it's all about this sort of individual trajectory towards making yourself a better person, of, you know, whatever. But man, we are so disconnected from, I, 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 the word you keep using, ecologies, is such a, such a potent and powerful word because we're disconnected right. from all of these other ecologies. Like we don't yeah. see... We don't see that the things that we do have effects way beyond our borders and our shores even. Um, so thinking globally is not something we do well. Um, yes. Hell, yes. Thinking, thinking outside of my own individual person is not something we do well. Right. What I love about this, the things that you're talking about and, and pressing us towards a more authentic kind of faith 
to me, a more authentic faith means trying better and better to understand the interconnectedness and the interdependence that we have when we share with everyone on the planet. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, A little bit about my story of faith is probably similar to to John's here, that, that I would... I grew up in church. It wasn't just Sunday. It was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was, it was, and and by church, I mean devil chasing, tongue, what, the tongue lashing, (laughs) Pentecostal, altar dancing, basket offering, collecting church. You know, it was all of that. Then I started to notice, you know, the cracks, like, this hyper-individualism that you speak about is quite present in Nigeria, which is, you know, a, a highly Pentecostal nation and actually contributes a lot of the Pentecostal superstars we have around the world. I, I worked, I, I, I went to the church of one of these preachers. He built a university. I went to that university, graduated and became a lecturer and professor in that university and was very close to him. So I traveled the globe with him, not the globe, I, I did some travels with him I, uh, in this private jet. I carried his briefcases. I, I did all of that. I know the prosperity gospel in and out. I know all of that. I know all of, all of those things. I know them very well. I know the people, um, or Roberts in the United States, which the university I went to was modeled after. So I've, I've lived that life, but I started to notice that the people, right? People would drive out of their churches in their flashy cars. And then people by the roadside begging for money or begging for support were kind of left out of this radical economy of prosperity because it was about your faith. If your faith is working, then it should work for you. So it's your fault. And and these stories stayed with me and I didn't know. And I wrote in an essay that my footsteps leading from my room to the church started to dry out. I, I, I wasn't motivated any longer to attend an exclusivity, you know. And I remember one day saying to myself, I'm going to a mosque instead, <laughs> just to defy my training as a Christian. You know, just to, I, I don't know what I'm going to do there, but I'm just going to stay there. I didn't quite make it into the place. I stayed outside a mosque, but then walked away because I was really scared about doing it. But I made that move because I wanted something outside of the the uh, containment that I'd experienced for a long time. I think faith is more than just belief. I, I think faith is how bodies borrow other bodies to meet a complex world. The, the questions and answers that are posed to us or the questions posed to us and the answers we contribute or co-produce are always open-ended. And faith is the, the, the function the Pentecostal tribe is playing today is that it's playing heavily into a capitalist, Calvinistic, you know, mode of consumerism that basically transforms God into an ATM machine, right? It's just, if you believe right, you can check in your faith and check out the dollars, right? And, and, and that is deeply problematic for me. So I think we need new temples. I think we need new modes of becoming in faith because I don't want to rule out faith. I think faith is quite material. Faith is quite ordinary. It's ordinary because it's sacred and it's sacred because it's normal. We do it all the time. When we have, 
when we wear clothes, we're becoming in faith with our clothes. I think the world is constantly in faith with itself. Creatures are forming fidelities with other creatures. They're becoming into faith relationships with those creatures. It's not a special human thing, right? It's a spiritual ecology that creates and destroys. So I think we need new ways of being in inquiry today. It doesn't have to congeal into a religion. It doesn't have to congeal into a power system. But I think we need new ways of being in inquiry with the world around us today. Yeah. Well, and and it seems like when it does, when it does ultimately congeal into religion, that's when it becomes static, when it becomes becomes rigid. Um, yeah. and it becomes that same thing you, you, you keep using the other word you keep, you've, you've used a couple of times is containment. Um, and that's something yeah. I've been really, that's just, I don't know if you do this or not, but I have words that kind of play around in my head for a while. And, um, this word, this, this concept of containment is something that I've been mulling around for the last few weeks and actually writing a chapter in, in my book that's called containment, but it's all about how we try to contain God. And then, but also the, yes, the religious yeah. trappings and the religious structures that we insist upon building contain us and try yeah, to force us yeah. into these rigid molds of, of expectations of others. And it's, it's, it's just, it, it's absolutely soul crushing. There's, there's no creativity there, right? Do you know what I think about when I think about God? I think about a crack. So long growing up, I thought about God as this Gandalf, someone that looks like John, basically. (laughs) Long, long beard, white, long beard, you know, just, you know, that's the way I pictured God. And that's the way the images around us encourage us to picture God. Thanks to Morgan Freeman, you know, people are changing their ideas, right? (laughs) However, I, I, you know, I think of God as the rift, the metabolic rift in the fabric of continuity. Uh, I, I think about the moment when Jesus died and the curtain split into two. I, I, I think about the, um, the, the slave stories about, and this might be one that I, I might share. You might not know this one. Uh, the legend, this is an Afro-diasporic legend, especially told in Brazil. It's told about a woman who was enslaved, um, taken upon those ships, Bound for the West, and on those, on, on one of such one on that journey, I think she had a child, and and she tried to console the child. Of course, the child was screaming in pain, uncomfortable. Um, this wasn't first class or economy class. This was, uh, of course, uh, traveling within containment. You know, a sailing jail cell, and she couldn't. She couldn't control the tears. And she was inspired in a moment to tear her dress, as the legend goes, to tear her dress and to weave a rag doll with that piece of her dress. And she was able to console her child for a moment, so the story goes. And she named that rag doll Abayomi. Uh, Abayomi is my father's name. Abayomi is my son's name. It's a Yoruba name. And it's now used in Brazil as a form of resistance. The full name or the full meaning of Abayomi is Otaobayomi Olonroje, which means that the enemy would have killed me. The enemy would have won, but God did not allow it. There are other meanings for it that they thought they had buried me, but they did not imagine that I was a seed, right? It also means, it also means or points to the idea that 
even colonialism, even oppression is never total. It's never complete. That there is a crack in the sickle or in the gun or something that, that even your, your feet or your knee on my neck, in the case of George Floyd, right? You might whip my back open. You might break my neck, but something in you is broken as well in that self same moment. So it's the impossibility of full capture, right? That's what I think of as God, that God is the crack in everything that refutes and re repudiates and rejects completeness. That is the invitation to continue to emerge and play in an ongoing experimental universe. So God is the incompleteness of everything, the playful child. I'm writing a novel soon about God appearing as a child instead of, of this instead of as this uh, grand vizier, you know, grand master who has mastered everything, but as someone tinkering and playing and failing and trying to understand stuff as well. I think of God that way. Yeah. First of all, whenever that book comes out, uh, I want I want copies of that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> as soon as you started talking about God, I like I like the way you take <laughs> I think you're going to go one way and you always go another way. This is amazing. So I was I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> so not God emerging from the crack, but God is the crack. Like the crack. That is the, that is the possibility of something coming out of something that you think is broken, right? Yes. Um, I love yes. the, I, I have this picture that I took years ago and I'm sure you could find one all over the place, but I took a picture of, of, a, of a slab of concrete and this concrete had cracked and what had come out of this crack in the concrete was one little tiny flower. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. I'm thinking, yeah, that's God. Mm -hmm. Wow. So mm -hmm. that God, even that giant slab of concrete, you know, pressing its weight down on the earth was not enough yes. to completely no. destroy life underneath it. It found a way through the crack and it, it finds, found a way, it finds its way through God. A bayou. Yes. Ah. It's, it's just like a, a smile in Auschwitz, right? Unexpected. Yeah. Unexpected. It's like something, something's not supposed to be there, but it's there. It's like surprise. It's like yeah. God is always yet to come. So yeah. the, the arguments about does God exist or does he not exist? Yeah. I take a fugitive approach to this. It's not, it's, <laughs> it's, I don't care about that. It's not about origins <laughs> or going back to the past. For right, me, it's exactly. God is always yet to come. God is fresh, always emerging, right? It's, remember the story of Samson? Something goes to wherever, what's the name of the place? It starts with a T, makes out with Delilah, and on his way back. No, before he goes on his way there, he kills a lion, right? As you yeah. do if you're that strong. Of course. You just kill a lion. There's a lion. Why shouldn't I kill the lion? There he goes. So he kills the lion. <laughs> He's the environmentalist that he is. He kills the lion. And I, I, I think because the lion attacks him, to be fair. And, and then he goes on his way, and then on his way back, he finds uh, the, the the line is producing honey, right? The, 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 or there's a right. there's yeah. a hive of bees there, and then he says something profound. He says, "Out of the uh, bitter comes the sweet," right? And then he poses this question to Philistines, I think, and they kind of understand what he means, and then he kills them. But <laughs> beyond all the killing, <laughs> the John Wick style killing is, is the is the idea that that. That creation isn't quite done and destruction is somewhat entangled with this notion of creation. When things fall apart, uh, that's also a falling together, right? We, we tend to think of God as anthropocentric because it works 
for us. You know, we bleed God that way. But I think God exceeds those anthropocentric figures, those, those, those images that we're used to. Um, and so I look for the cracks and cracks are amorphous. They take on different shapes. They're monstrous, they're chimeric. They invite us to stay with them instead of trying to patch them up. And I think that's the kind of politics we need today, right? We're so complete. We're complete. Individualism is the notion or the paradigm of completion, the, the search for purity. You know, it's the quest for ascension and arrival. That's what's playing forth in cancel culture today, even in the fundamentalist politics in the United States today and across the world. We need a little bit of humility. Do you find that, and we, you know, we in the United States, we in the Western, uh, we in the West have done this, it seems a few times that we become kind of isolationist, right? There's times where we, we pull in, we pull back in and I'm, I'm wondering if, because we we feel that we can't fix, you know, we as in specifically the United States, we can't fix what's happening outside of our own country, so we give up on it. But right. it seems that in the long term, by us becoming so isolationist and becoming so uh, self-centered on our own person, our own small group, that we inevitably also give up on the people around us. And I'm wondering if there's a connection with um, giving up on seeing the world globally as something that needs to, that needs, uh, that we need to look at and see how it's working and see where we have done damage outside of our own country with colonialization, with, you know, a number of things. And, but is it directly connected to our inability to take care of our brothers and sisters right in our own community? Because we, we have so isolated ourselves to the point where we've given up on not only the world stage, but we've given up on the community stage because we, we just kind of build in and build in and build in. I don't, I don't fully trust the retreat, even in a time of Trump. Uh, I, I, I would, I dare say that I think Isolationism is calculated expansionism, <laughs> right? Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. But that even even in the uh, even in the squeezing in, you know, in the post nine one one period, there were still there were still attempts at you know securing. Well, of course, that was there was expansionist uh, strategies right. in Afghanistan oh, yeah. and all of that, Iraq and all of that. But but even after that, even after killing Saddam and all of that, you know, let me say it this way. Right now, if you travel, you can enter the United States before you enter the United States. That's empire. And I mean it in this, in this sense that you, you want to go to, for someone like me, I would fly through Abu Dhabi, for instance. And right there, you know, right in Abu Dhabi, right in the Middle East is if they're United States agents, there's the United States. They basically say, welcome to the United States, right in the Middle East. If I fill all the forms right and they admit me, right? That is empire in its radical discontinuities, how it spreads out. And this followed, I think this was a policy, this was an agenda of Secretary Clinton. Um, but I'm just saying that there's there are stealthy ways that empire expands, even under the discourse of retreat. 
and we're pulling back and we're coming in, right? There, there's two ways that it retains its tentacular control right, over right. domains because it's, it, it doesn't understand how to do otherwise. Empire can only expand because the costs of falling in on itself would be, would outweigh the costs of, you know, expansion. So the cheaper way to do it is to continue to gain resources to subsidize the weight of its, of its legacies, right? So in, in that sense, uh, you know, I was, I, I would say that I, I, I don't, tr- I don't trust isolationist or expansion. I think they're one and the same thing, just under different lenses. Um, I also do not trust the state. I don't trust nation states. Not to think of nation states as evil or bad. You know, I, I never see the world in those binaries. But I think even the state is a collection of violence, is is a trope of violence in itself. And that it can offer justice. But at this point in time, my brothers, justice is not enough, <laughs> right? Um, even justice is inadequate now. And I can give a whole analysis about how the very, the public, the, the nation states are built on the regimes of public, on the legislation and the governance of the public. The public being the space where the citizen thrives. But the public itself is haunted. The public is layering over and covering and invisibilizing the bones of black bodies, for instance. And it thrives on that invisibilization. And then it, 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 it tries to speak in the language of post-racial equality. Come on, let's all be equal. But that language is premised on the invisibilization of slaves, literal bones buried under renovation projects, right? So it's, it's, is that even at this point in time, it seems justice is a creature of the state and we're looking for other ways of meeting the world in its complexity that is not dependent on this creature, on, on getting a seat at the table. I, for one, I'm looking for fugitive epistemologies. So would you, would you say that th- this idea of isolation is, is more of a false narrative? That it's this idea that, that maybe our government or people in power have, have kind of put over us as a, like, a, like, like blinders. To this idea, no, no, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. I wouldn't. I wouldn't speak of things in that conspiratorial way. Even though <laughs> I think of the world as as uniquely or as vastly conspiratorial, I I, I don't think it needs to even be. I, I, what I'm saying is that you could have the most, you could have the most, you could have a minoritarian in office right now, whose agenda is pull back the troops, and he this person is honest and transparent and does uh, their best to help everyone understand what the government is doing. And the government, because the government is not just a tool of humans, the government has a life of its own, right? It's not just the deep state and all of that. It's, it's that the government is an agency in its own. And I think the Obama story is an example of that. You could have someone as well-intentioned and as articulate as President Obama and you know, Obama, the organizer, the community organizer was vastly different from Ogana, uh, Obama, the state organ, right? The person who was part of the state and part of statecraft and statehood, right? So uh, what I'm trying to say is that this exceeds good intentions. I think empire does not know what to do except to expand, 
right? Even when the empire releases its hold on a people and downs its flag and says, we're letting you guys go, it still creates the architecture so that however you behave and however you, the uncolonized people, play your game, you always refer to us. That, that is why even when slaves were released, the architecture of the world they were released to was still white, right? So the game was still, you still play our game, right? We still own the businesses, we own the land, we own the infrastructure. So you still come to us because it may not be um, cost-effective to hold you in plantations any longer. So we're going to revamp this whole thing. And this is how realities repeat themselves. Well, this is how we transform, you know, how we go from plantations to prisons as the new plantations, right? The pipeline, yes, yes. The game, yes. the game was rigged. The game was rigged from day one. And like, as you said, just because, just because we abolished slavery and, you know, released the captives, um, we released them into a world that they had no control over and they had no agency mm-hmm. in and they had no options, mm-hmm. but to try and play the game that was set out before them and, you know, fast forward, yeah. you know, go through Jim Crow laws and all the other, you know, bullshit yeah, that, we, yeah. we, that we've done with this. And I, th- I think it's really easy from from within, from inside of an empire, you know, and I, so I'm an American, I'm born here, I'm raised here. This is my paradigm. This is the lens through which I see the world. Um, yeah. It's very easy to not see yourself as an empire. You see, yes. you know, you see yourself as benevolent. You see yourself as, you know, somehow ideologically, <laughs> you know, profound and we've got things sort of and we've been fed our own line of propaganda our whole lives about you know the greatness of america we don't and then we compare ourselves against well we're not the romans we're not the byzantines we're not the you know we're we're, except we are right (laughs) of course we are you can you can you can put a happy smiley face on it but you know when you can walk into a you know, into an airport in some far-flung part of the world, and the first thing you see is the golden arches of McDonald's. Man, America is, is <laughs> infiltrated, yes. man. Yes. <laughs> I've had yes. McDonald's in every part of the world, man. <laughs> yes, yes. So, and, and Coke. <laughs> yes, and it all comes, but, but as you said earlier, I want to come back to what you said, that all comes at a cost. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. It all comes at a cost. The cost is what some commentators call the Anthropocene. Right, the Anthropocene. For those who might just be hearing this term for the first time, is this reckoning is a cautionary planetary, uh, planetary tale that we have become too big for the planet we live on. Right, we have become a super organism. We are um, so entangled with planetary shifts and planetary processes um, as a result of these industrial moments that we're having. That um, that the world can no longer bear the weight, the heavy toxic weight of our activities. So they call this, you know, we're no longer in the Holocene era. We are now in the post-Holocene era, which is the Anthropocene, literally the time of man, right? So we're giants, right? and that comes at a cost because um, uh, th- then if we poison the world and we make a lot of money doing it. What will we eat? Right. And, and, and it's the ideology that we resist death. Right. It's, it's like modernity is the, um, is the, is the city built to resist grieving, is to, res- to, to resist our modest entanglement with the lowliest of creatures. 
because we want to see ourselves as exceptional, as as the um, exception to the rule, right? So that's the that's the that's the uh, cost. However, even the way we're going about responding to the Anthropocene is just another symptom of our exceptionality, right? It's the idea, and this is spoken about in many different languages. It's green sustainability. It's the future. Let's save the world and get back to normal. Green technology everywhere. Let's just, we can fix it. Bring the brightest minds into the room, bring the holiest people into the room, and then we can divine our way out of this shit. However, <laughs> however, however. The, the thing is, like I've said over and over again, the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis. I like to point out to many people that I travel to um, meet uh, across the Atlantic that I'm always fascinated by the fastidiousness of Americans when they um, take their trash and, you know, very, very carefully and re- almost religiously uh, parse their trash into plastic and food and blah, 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 because they want to save the environment. What they do not know, <laughs> and this is the talk about harm again, what they do not recognize is that more than 90% of the trash that they think is going to a faraway land and coming back to them in some recycled messianic form actually goes to Gambia, goes to Vietnam, goes to Africa and becomes our playground, right? So even the righteousness of citizens in the West is subsidized by the lives in the so-called global South, right? And this is the Anthropocene. We've buried and buried the dust under the carpet and we've made a mountain. And so there's nowhere else to go. Um, and, and so what, what I like to point out to people is there is a gravitational force that is pulling the slave ship. If you think of the slave ship as the Anthropocene, I think a crack has emerged in the slave ship. That's God. And the slave ship is sinking. We're doing our darndest right now to patch up the crack so that we can keep on sailing. You know, let's get back on the, on the, on the, on the, on the waters. But something else is pulling the slave ship down and saying, sink. Meet the others here. Meet the bones. Meet God here. Not in the bombastic and the spectacular, but in the whispery voices of oceanic elders. In death, in dying well, meet all of these entities here. And maybe you would know how to respond. Maybe you would shapeshift. Wow. <laughs> I'd, a handful of times as we've been doing podcast interviews with people, we're left speechless and, and I'm speechless. Um, that, that you've given me a, a ton, a ton to think about. Um, wow. Like Nat says, you know, there, as we are doing these episodes, these, these interviews, there, there, are, there have been quite a few times where we are just absolutely left speechless. And what, what is, okay, so the old me five, six years ago, the old me, um, as I'm being given this information that doesn't sometimes is new, not, doesn't fit my narrative, right? That I grew up in. Uh, the old me would, would want to push back and say, well, but, but we're, we're, we're trying. We're doing our, we're doing our damnedest, right? We're, we're, we're doing, we're doing the good work. And I'm at a point right now where I'm like, I, I, no, I actually, no, no, we're not. We're, we are trying. I'll, I'll give us that. We're trying, but we have so far to go when it comes to listening as opposed to opening up our damn mouths 
and putting our narrative over another group of people who we have marginalized for so damn long. And, and we, and we want to be the white savior. We want to be the whatever you, whatever, whatever version of that you want to be, you want to say. And I honestly think, you know, as, as, as we get to talk to people like you is what we need to learn first is to listen, to be okay with being really uncomfortable with what other people perceive as what we have done and what we are continuing to do. And, um, I just, I, I applaud all of this as a way for us to hopefully move forward in a better way. I don't have a lot of hope. I really don't. I, I mean, that's a good place. I mean, yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, I, you know, it, it's, it's sad. It's sad to see how divisive we are and how we have become even more divisive as, as we supposedly are trying to become more open-minded. Right. But it seems mm-hmm. like we, uh, in a lot of ways are shutting that down, but I really, I'm coming to a place where I am, I am really becoming comfortable being uncomfortable and, and being comfortable saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do other than just listen. And that's been a really hard step to be, to stop being defensive to stop getting to a place where I feel like I have to defend my myself. Yeah. And yeah. and I just need to I've learned to this. So it's like I'm just gonna I just need to get out of the way. And let me tell you, brother, wherever there's confusion, God exists. <laughs> <laughs> well then he's everywhere. Brother, yeah. Yeah. Got, yes. We got confusion everywhere. You know what I love yes. about talking to guys like you is I have a I have a whole sheet of notes here and I'm just writing down cool stuff you say. So <laughs> fugitive epistemologies that that's that's going on the list of great stuff. Um, I'm actually gonna go read up on zombie funguses. Um, yes please <laughs> um, gonna look up Anna Singh because I need to know more about her. Yeah, I come away with so much more information. Uh, I really feel like we get so much more out of this than 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 we ever offer anybody. But to whatever degree that we can we just like to offer platforms and amplify voices and, and make sure that, 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 you know, some competing ideologies are getting out there, you know, so we're not just putting more of the same out into the world. So, um, we didn't even get a chance to talk about, this is how good this conversation has been, Bio, is that we didn't even get a chance to talk about your book, which I love, uh, these wilds beyond our fences. <laughs> Maybe we can get together sometime and talk about that. Maybe when your next yeah. book, your novel is ready to be, to be, to be put out, um, which I'm also very, very excited for. Um, but if it's all the same with you, uh, I, I think we'll wrap it up and just remind yes. people that we will link to everything bio uh, at the, on, in the show notes. You need to make sure and check out his website, uh, read his essays. They're fantastic. There's YouTube videos. I've seen a few though. I mean, I'm telling you, just, just pretty much everything that this man puts his hand to seems to be uh, genuinely creative and good and new. It'll, it'll, it'll stretch your mind. Um, but we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. Other than that, all I can say is thank you. Uh, thank I'm so you, glad brothers. you took the time thank to you. meet with us from halfway around the world. And um, I guess technology is good for something after all. At least it allowed yep. us to, to have this conversation. <laughs> of, um, course, of course. I appreciate you, man. Um, God bless you. And uh, 
Don't forget to check out the show notes. Make sure and go uh, go buy the books. Man, I think your audiobook for These Wilds Beyond Our Fences is about to, to be released as well. It's, it, it's soon. It'll yeah, be it's on Audible soon, yes. as a pre-order. So I'm pre-ordering yes, that as well. Yes. Do you read that, by the way? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. perfect. Now I'm since definitely since buying since it. Father to daughter, I couldn't conceive of another way to escape <laughs> that <laughs> possibility. It okay. has to be that. Done I that am way, so you know? now okay. Then it's getting pre-ordered by me in the next five minutes. I'm so excited for that. But all right, if I don't stop talking, we'll just keep talking for another hour. But hey, I appreciate right. you, man. Love you. Thank you for coming Thank on you, the brothers. show. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, John. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.